Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, made with Zencaster. I am your host, Dr. Justin Laymiller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Genital appearance is a common body concern across persons of different genders and sexual orientations. For example, some people think their penises are too small, others think their vulvas are unattractive, and yet others are worried that their vaginas aren't tight enough. This has led to an explosion in the number of people seeking genital rejuvenation or augmentation, as well as a huge number of procedures to choose from. But do all of these procedures really work as promised, and are they even safe? Also, would so many people be undergoing these procedures in the first place if we just did a better job of educating people about sex and the human body? To discuss the growing world of genital enhancement, I am joined by Dr. Rachel Rubin, a board-certified urologist and sexual medicine specialist. She is an assistant clinical professor of urology at Georgetown University and works in a private practice in the Washington, D.C. area. She is one of only a handful of physicians fellowship trained in male and female sexual medicine. Dr. Rubin is a clinician, researcher, and educator, and serves as the education chair for the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. This is going to be a fascinating conversation, so let's dive right in. Hi, Rachel, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I am starstruck, and it is an absolute honor. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It is a pleasure to see you again. We actually met a couple of years ago at a conference following a talk that I gave on sexual fantasies, and it turns out that we have a lot in common, not the least of which is that we're both sex educators and researchers who came from the same hometown of Canton, Ohio. Now, if Canton is known for anything, it's usually the Professional Football Hall of Fame, but apparently it's also notable for being the birthplace of many sex educators. Now, I have to ask, given that we're both from the same kind of small and conservative town, what was your experience with sex education like growing up? Was it covered in your school? And was this something that was openly discussed in your household? It's kind of a funny story, actually. So I left Canton, Ohio when I was just about five years old, moved to New Haven, Connecticut, and then in middle school, moved to the Washington, D.C. area. So I'm a little bit of a, a wandering Jew, if you will. I sort of moved to different areas. And I remember one thing about sex education, and I speak about this all the time when I lecture. It was a male PE teacher in middle school. I still remember exactly the room we were in. I remember what he looked like. And all I remember, the only thing I remember learning is the word smegma. Now, smegma is the oils and skin cells and uh, cheesy-like substances that exist underneath a foreskin. Now, what's funny about this story is not just that the word smegma is hilarious, but I went to an all-Jewish school where no, none of the boys had smegma because they were all circumcised. And so yet that was the only thing I took away from my sex education. And yet many, many years later, you know, I chose to go into this incredible field. And so that is the only thing I remember. What about you in Ohio? You, you were in Ohio much longer than myself. Yeah, I spent my whole childhood and adolescence in Ohio, and we didn't learn much more. Actually, we did not learn about smegma. If, if we did, I must have blocked that memory. <laughs> but <laughs> but I remember distinctly the day that we learned about sex for the first time in 
the fifth grade. I was in an all Catholic school at the time. And we were going to talk about this mysterious subject called sex. And I was so excited to learn about this thing that I had kind of heard the word mentioned many times before. And I go into class and I write sex ed really big at the top of my notebook. And at the end of the class, I had literally taken no notes and I knew less <laughs> coming out of that than I did going in. But apparently on your notepad, it only said smegma. <laughs> Which is funny because now I'm doing some research around the word smegma, but for for females and clitorises and clitorises uh, do get smegma and, and clitoral adhesions and phimosis exist. And and that is a completely blank slate of research, which is both terrifying in 2022, but also really exciting that we can really start to understand, you know, the female anatomy at least as much as we do for our the, the male anatomy. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because there are so many things that we still don't know about sex and about the human body because they haven't been studied. No one's bothered to ask the questions. And so I'm always glad when someone is diving into a new area and helping us to expand our knowledge base. Now, you told us a little bit about your background with sex ed, but how did you transition into the field of sexual medicine? Why did you want to become a doctor who focuses on this area? You know, I was very lucky when I did my medical training. I knew I was interested in women's health. I knew with my friends growing up, we weren't afraid to talk about these things, right? I had girlfriends who had pain putting in tampons. I had girlfriends who couldn't orgasm. I had girlfriends who had horrible pain with their first penetrative experience. I had male friends who were comfortable talking about, you know, their issues and masturbation. And we just talked about this stuff. And I wasn't afraid. And and I think growing up in in the group that I did and, and with my family, there were no off-limit questions. There were nothing you couldn't ask. And I just became very comfortable with it. And as I was going through med school, I realized that that was pretty rare, actually. And, and once I found urology, which allowed me the ability to take care of all genders, which I really value in my training, once I discovered urology, I discovered that my colleagues and my attend my people above me who were training me were not that good at talking about sex. They actually shied away from the conversations and were super awkward about it. Now, I'm super awkward too, but in a way because I like asking those questions. I really want to know people's business. I want to help them. And there is no question that I'm afraid to ask. And when you lead with comfort and confidence and really just empathy and love, and you really let people, you know, talk to you, as you know, they'll tell you anything. And so I discovered that what was easy for me and interesting to me was actually really not easy or interesting to many other people. And so I found my mentor, I just, I was lucky, to be honest, I was at a conference at a very early in my training as a urologist. And I went to a course by the American Urologic Association on a female sexual medicine. And it was a course that has been run every year for about 15 years by my mentor, Dr. Erwin Goldstein. And I walked in that course. And by the end of it, I, I called my boyfriend at the time. I said, that's it. I know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And I walked up to Dr. Goldstein. I said, I'll be your fellow in five years. And so I was blessed to get to do the fellowship. And I have taught that course with him every year since I left fellowship. And so it's a wild time when you can be early in your career and really sort of have a voice and, and be able to, gosh, even being on this podcast, I'm just, it's unbelievable, you know, to think about, but that's what's so pathetic about it because we do have so many questions and there is so much that we don't know. So while I can call myself an expert, I know that's not, that's a ridiculous thing to say, right? I, I, I am an expert in all that we know 
but there is so much to learn and so much still to figure out, if that makes sense. Yes. And also thank you for the work that you do in helping to educate other physicians about sexuality related issues. Because as I've mentioned before on the podcast, I've interviewed several physicians. There's very little training in medical school that's focused on sex. And I saw a recent study that found that it was really only people in urology and gynecology residents who said that they actually felt relatively comfortable addressing patient concerns about sex. And doctors in every other specialty were kind of like, nope, I don't feel like I'm equipped to do that. And sexuality-related issues can come up in pretty much any specialty. And I think it's also really important just in primary care, you know, that the everyday doctors you're going to know a lot about sex because they're really on the front lines. They're the first person who's going to be seeing a lot of these patients and we're just not equipping them with the information and skills and tools that they need. So we need more folks like you who are out there doing that training. And it's so frustrating because we have so much work to do, Justin, right? We, we have to educate them on just bringing it up, right? Just bring it up, just talk about it. But then they have no tools and resources to know what to do about it. And I'll tell you, doctors do not bring things up that they don't like to talk about, that they don't know about, because we all love to talk about what we know. It's not fun when you're a doctor and you have to say, well, I've never seen this before, or I don't know what to do. I say it all the time and I'm happy to say it, but but I, you know, I, I started a group of working with a group of medical students and research students just to say, I'm tired of telling patients that we have no data for this, right? I spend all day every day saying, well, we don't have data for this, but let's do X, Y, and Z. Let's get some data, right? And I think your field is so rich and there are so many incredible people doing this research, but that's where the psycho, you know, it's all psychosocial research. We need the bio in biopsychosocial because we there is so much biology and there's so much physiology and, and there aren't enough people sort of focused on that. Absolutely. And, you know, I have a textbook on human sexuality where I take a biopsychosocial perspective because I think in order to really understand human sexuality, you have to be looking at it from all of these different angles. And if you're just looking at one perspective, you're not getting the full picture. Can I tell you real quick is I talked to a drug representative today on the phone who said, oh, my God, you're going to be talking to Justin Lemeler. I only saved one textbook from college, just one. And it was his textbook. It was the best class I ever took. And so I told him I would uh, give him a shout out on the podcast. Well, I love hearing that. Thank you so much. <laughs> that is one of the most rewarding things of being a textbook author is when somebody tells you that they actually kept your book rather than like rushing back to the bookstore to sell it back. I'm working on the third edition of the book right now, and hopefully it will be out soon and we can update our knowledge base on sex and sex research. So let's talk about the world of genital enhancement procedures. As a urologist and a sexual medicine specialist, I'm guessing you've probably encountered at least a few patients who are interested in or at least curious about some kind of enhancement procedure. So let me start our conversation by asking, is this something that you see in your practice? And if so, what kinds of enhancements are people looking for? And has that changed at all over time? So I see tons of, you get tons of people who have questions, who, who have concerns, who have things they want bigger, uh, fatter, girthier, uh, uh, smaller, tighter, right? Um, different. We all, you know, uh, strive to have different things. We wish we looked this way. We wish this happened. And it's really challenging. It's this, this, in, in your intro, I think you really summed it up so beautifully because 
On one hand, I want anyone to have the genitals or the appearance that they want to have. And if science can make it happen, like people have the right to do what they want with their bodies. So for our transgender patients, for our whoever patients, who am I to say, no, you can't have this X, Y, and Z done with your genitalia. And when you ask people who get certain genital augmentation surgeries, satisfaction rates are pretty damn high, right? When you've convinced yourself that your labia need to look a certain way, and then you have your labia cut a certain way, people are pretty damn happy, actually. And so who are we to say that's wrong? We shouldn't be offering it. That's terrible. On the flip side, nobody is studying the sexual health outcomes and the functional outcomes of these procedures. And so there's on the one hand, how does it look? On the other hand, how does it drive, right? How does it function? And and so that's a huge problem. And so you may have a plastic surgeon who is very quick to offer a certain procedure, but we don't even have basic vulvar anatomy in our textbooks to really get them to understand, well, where are the nerves? And how do we not botch that a, a nerve? And how do we make sure we enhance and not hurt sexual function? Because as you said earlier, we're not even asking our patients about sexual function. So how will we know if we're harming sexual problems. And then the patient's mad. They come back. They say, I could orgasm before the surgery. Now I can't have an orgasm. And the doctor says, well, I don't know what to do for you. And the patient gets told they're crazy or, you know, go see a therapist or something like that when these conversations could have happened before getting started. Yeah. I think you summarized the complex issues here very, very well, right? So on the one hand, we want our patients to be happy. People have bodily autonomy. And if procedures are available, people should have the option of being able to choose whether it's right for them or not. But it's really hard, if not impossible, to make an informed choice if you don't have data and you don't actually know what you're getting into and what the potential risks are. And, you know, this actually happens in a lot of different areas of medicine. You know, I'm thinking about how sometimes patients will go in for procedures that aren't related to genital appearance or genital issues, but then have an impact on their genital functioning, right? So for example, people who get certain anal surgeries for dealing with hemorrhoids or other issues, the doctor is primarily concerned in those cases with preserving function for the rectum, but they're not concerned with sexual pleasure and is that person sexually active anally. And so, you know, I think across lots of different fields of medicine, we're not always thinking about how a given procedure we do might impact sexual functioning if we don't know what the patient's sexual practices are. Mm-hmm. We, we sort of cause this problem in a way because we make them private parts. They're private to you. They're private to me. They're private to the owner of them. They're private to the doctor. We don't talk about private parts, right? And so that's a problem. If we don't talk about private parts, then People get very upset when what they, you know, what they had is now no longer there. And so I'm not saying don't do, and I agree with you 100%. I'm not saying don't have the procedure, don't have that cancer saving surgery, don't have that hemorrhoid surgery, but you must, must, must really truly be informed when you consent to these procedures. Because someone who has, you know, you can look at it from, we argue all the time. So if someone has urinary incontinence and they they leak urine every time they, a, a female leaks urine every time they cough, laugh, or sneeze, there is a surgery called a sling where you take a piece of mesh, put it um, underneath the urethra in the vagina, and you pull it up and it, it, it helps so that you don't leak when you cough, laugh, or sneeze. There is a large percentage of women who enjoy anterior vaginal wall stimulation 
stimulation. That's the so-called G-spot, which we could argue about and talk about. That's basically prostate tissue. And some people enjoy it. Some people don't. Most orgasms come from the clitoris. But if you take someone who does like anterior vaginal wall stimulation and you do put that mesh in there, they may be upset if they have a difference in their sensation afterwards. But if you take large groups of people who have that surgery done, overwhelmingly sexual function improves. Why? Because they're not leaking, right? They're not leaking urine all over their partner. They're thrilled. They feel more confident in themselves. They feel more comfortable. They can go running. They, it's wonderful. But the data doesn't capture those people who do have that, that pleasurable anterior vaginal stimulation change. So what do most patients do? Well, I had a good run. It stinks, but I'm not leaking anymore. And there's nobody here to help me. But they should have been warned. They should have been before surgery. You should be asked, hey, ma'am, do you like anterior vaginal wall stimulation? You do? Okay, well, there is a small chance this could be affected. I can't predict if it will or if it won't. Do you still want to proceed with the surgery? Because that's the key is, you know, I put in a lot of penile implants, you know, men who have erectile dysfunction. We put in these uh, basically silicone balloons in their penis that they can pump up and deflate on demand. And they're wonderful surgeries. And the satisfaction rates are super high. But I always have to spend a lot of time with patients saying, this is what it is and this is what it's not. I never want you to wake up and say, geez, she didn't tell me about X, Y, and Z or, oh, you know, it's not, I said, this is not going to be your old penis. This is going to be a functional penis that we're going to make work for you. But here are the downsides. Here's the pros, here are the cons. And let's really have a conversation about it. And it's so important if you're going to get any surgery on your genitals or in your pelvic area is to spend time with the person doing it and really, really go over the pros and the cons. Yeah. And I think there's a responsibility on both sides of the table for the doctors to be very well aware of what are the potential risks to communicate that to the patient and also for the patient to ask about these things and to talk about what is important to them and to ensure that you're getting the custom treatment plan that is going to work for you and your body and get the best possible outcome. And if you feel comfortable, like you were saying, if you enjoy anal sex and, and you enjoy receptive intercourse and you're uncomfortable talking to your doctor about that and how your surgery may impact that, you need to find a new doctor and you need to realize that these are body parts just like any other body parts. And we must as a society realize that that just like high blood pressure and diabetes, sexual function is just medicine. And you have to be able to say the words. You should be able to say the words to your partner. You should be able to say those words to your doctor. And so sometimes it takes practice, but we really have to make that a comfortable, safe space, you know, uh, that exam room. Totally agree. So let's talk about penile enhancements. I get a lot of questions from readers and listeners about whether there's anything you can do to permanently increase penis size. And just for purposes of this conversation, to be clear, I'm not talking about erectile dysfunction implants like you were just discussing. We're talking about people who have healthy functional tissue and they want to increase penis size. And I've read about a lot of different procedures from implants that go under the skin of the shaft to fat injections, to cutting the suspensory ligament that anchors the penis to the pubic bone, thereby allowing more of it to hang outside the body, to injections with dermal fillers that are similar to what people put in their lips temporarily to plump them up. So as a urologist, what are your thoughts on this wide range of penile augmentation procedures? Can any of these treatments really work to increase penis size and are they safe? 
It's such a topical and really important question. And actually, I just had in my inbox today an article posted. I just retweeted it out, an article posted from the Journal of Sexual Medicine. Dr. Wayne Hellstrom's group down in New Orleans just posted a review article on this exact topic. And it was really uh, reviewing all of these different male enhancement surgeries and really saying, you know, do these guys have small penises? Do these guys have abnormal penises? And the conclusions, and I haven't gone totally, I just got it today, so I haven't gone totally through the article, but the conclusions are the majority, the the, the very large majority have totally normal penises in every way, shape, and form. And so again, that's not to say that if your penis looks one way, if you want it to look a different way, that you shouldn't have the right to do that. But it's also that understanding of, your penis is normal. We care about function. Um, nobody's comparing penis sizes. You know, we're looking for pleasure. And so it really is why do men think their penises need to be bigger? Why is there a competition? Who are the, you know, are the partners really upset about it? Or is there more there, more to the story there? And as you know, it's a biopsychosocial approach. And there have been studies, vaginas, if that's where you want the penis to go. And I don't know that the studies have been done on rectums, but I would argue it's very similar, has no idea the size to a certain extent, right? Like when you have a range of normal size, the orifice with which you are entering actually doesn't, if you blindfold the person, they really probably don't know. And so it's, it's, you know, how does it function? Does it give you pleasure? Does it give your partner pleasure? Is it, you know, are, are there other ways where you can enhance pleasure. Now I'm all about how do we make sex more fun, you know, and, and maybe we have a good sexual function. So how do we make it even better? But at the end of the day, you know, going through a surgery where you're going to slice and dice your penis, it's really scary because there are very important nerves. There's very important muscles that need to function. And any way that you can damage those things is at risk for, oh, I didn't even realize how bad this could be, right? Like I had one problem and now I have 12 more problems. Yeah. And I've done a bit of research looking into what this world of penis enhancement says. There's not a lot of data, but there are a fair number of reports of complications that arise when people undergo these procedures. And I don't think we necessarily have a great sense of what the complication rate actually is because they're not necessarily always reported and tracked. And some of the complications can include deformity of the penis. It can actually include penile shrinkage where, you know, if there's there's certain scar tissue that develops, the penis can actually end up smaller than it was to begin with. And there can be loss of sensation and function and various other issues that can arise. And so, you know, the current state of the evidence, I think, on penile enhancement is that, you know, the surgical procedures seem to be pretty risky. And I don't know that it's something that you can really recommend until you actually have more evidence. Now, something like use of, say, dermal filler might be a little less risky because that's a temporary injection that will go away in 18 months or so if it's dissolved by the body. But some people can be allergic to filler. So I just I don't know what the answer is there. The problem is also, how does your body scar? How does your body respond to some of these things? And it's a very sensitive area in order to, you know, be experimenting on. And that's really what these procedures are. They are experiments. Now, if you, people do all sorts of experiments, especially sexual experiments. And so if that is what you and you decide is good for you and your body, then yes. But when you experiment with something, you have to be willing to take on the risks and the idea that it may not go as planned. And, and we are living in a world 
world where people love experimenting with snake oil. They love, you know, we've got all sorts of uh, shockwaves out there and all sorts of PRP and, and sexual enhancement and all these devices people are selling with zero data behind them. Now, some or there is some data on animal models or some small studies, but no large studies. And so it really becomes a who's doing it and what are the incentives behind it? Because if I'm doing a shockwave on a patient and I say, hey, this is an experimental thing, we know it's, it doesn't seem to cause harm in the some studies that are out, but we don't have long-term data. And this is the error behind it. This is how we think it works. I know I have the correct machine that's based on all the studies. Do you want to try it? Is a lot different than the commercials you hear on the radio that says, hey, come use this guaranteed machine that is going to guarantee you to have the best sex and best erections of your life and pay me $3 million in order to have it. That's very, very different. And so I think it's understanding who's doing this, where are their intentions, and what is their training. If you have a non-clinician doing something to your genitals who have no idea and have never been trained on how genitals work, that's a little scary because then the question is if something goes wrong, where do you go and who do they send you to? Or if you have the person who is invented the surgery and they do the surgery and they make all these promises and then you call them and say, hey, it's not going right. And they stop answering your phone calls, right? That's we, We've seen that happen as well. And then they call you and they say, oh my God, you got to help me. And so that, you know, I'll give you an example of that procedure that you were talking about where that, that sleeve goes sort of inside, you know, the penis. I had a patient who had very significant erectile dysfunction and he had one of these, he went to another state and had the person, you know, put in one of those. And it certainly didn't fix his erectile dysfunction. And it really, it didn't look, he wasn't happy with the way that it looked. And, you know, he came to see me, said, gosh, doc, what do I do? And so I had to reach out to my colleagues to say, hey, does anyone know how to take these things out? Because I don't want to do it. I don't want to damage his nerves and cause, I want an expert, you know, someone who's done a lot of these and I was able to find someone and he's doing great. There's a lot to say about these issues. Yeah. And, you know, it is scary, this idea that some people are going out and having these very significant procedures done by people who effectively are experimenting on their body and they don't necessarily know what the long-term effects or outcomes are going to be. And if something goes wrong, they might not be able to fix it. So I think there's a lot of caution to be warranted here. And, you know, whenever you hear somebody say guaranteed, you should be very wary of that in the world of medicine because you can't make those 100% guarantees. And I'll say I've heard arguments on both sides, which again makes it complex. Someone has given me the ex explanation of, well, breast implants, the way they started out were, you know, not that good. But we started there and the technology has improved, improved, improved and changed. And 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 now they're, they're you know, seem a lot safer than they used to be. So shouldn't we be starting somewhere with these penile enhancement surgeries in that, that, you know, men are asking for it. They want it. There is so much need. There's so much people. So shouldn't we uh, take it on and slowly research it so we can make it better, better, and better? Should we just say never do it and have all these people unhappy? And so I see that argument. I really do. But it is, you know, these are real people that you are operating on with real partners, with real uh, feelings, with real, you know, psychosocial issues. And so how do you, how do you navigate that world? And it is a very challenging world to navigate. Yeah, so true. So 
Scrotal enhancement is something that some men have pursued as well. And I was actually just reading a research paper in preparation for this podcast that used the term scrotal rejuvenation. Which, Ooh, that's a new one. I love it. I couldn't help but laugh a little bit about that. I'm not, to be clear, laughing at people who have concerns about their scrotum. Just the term scrotal rejuvenation is kind of funny. But in that paper, they discussed various procedures like a scrotal tuck for when things are hanging too low, as well as Botox injections when they aren't hanging low enough, which is what some people refer to as scrotox. Now, I find the use of Botox in genital enhancement to be fascinating. And I actually wrote a piece for Vice a while back on how Botox is kind of being treated as this genital wonder drug. And for my listeners, you know, basically the way Botox works is that it temporarily paralyzes muscles so that they don't contract. So when injected in the scrotal area, you're not going to experience as much shrinkage when, say, it's cold. And I've also seen some research where Botox has been injected at the base of the penis, where it seems to have that sort of similar effect of reducing shrinkage. And there are even some studies where they've looked at Botox as a potential treatment for erectile dysfunction and even for premature ejaculation. So, Rachel, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on Botox for genital enhancement. Can it work and is it safe? So I will say the thing that has changed my practice the most in the last couple of years is botulinum toxin. I won't say the word Botox because it's a brand name and I actually use a different brand that I think works a little bit better, but a botulinum toxin in the pelvic floor for women who have pain with sex and it's due to muscle tightness. So there are many reasons why vulva owners may have pain with sex. So you have to get a good diagnosis. But when that reason is and your muscles are too tight and all the other stuff has been ruled out, if you put botulinum toxin into those muscles, it is miraculous and really miraculous. In fact, I recently left a practice and when I, I left patients know that I was leaving to build my own practice, my phone went ringing off the hook and I did more injections the last two months because people were rushing in to get topped off, you know, to just get one more, you know, uh, before I left for my three month sabbatical and I wasn't pushing it. I wasn't sending out things saying, oh, there's a deal on this treatment. It was so patient driven and it really has has been eye-opening for me how incredible that it, it can work for the correct patient. Now, that's on the vulva side and pelvic floor side of things. On the male side of things, yes, it's fascinating research. Nothing is quite prime time, in my opinion, and we need a ton of more research. I think it is fascinating, the idea of putting botulinum toxin in the smooth muscle of the penis to make it work better. The big scary fear is if you do it too much, you can risk a priapism, which is an erection lasting uh, too long, and you can't undo a botulinum toxin. It takes, you know, four months to, to wear off. And so I haven't seen any large studies. I haven't seen anything that's on humans to a very large degree. There, there have been a couple studies that have come out. I am uh, with my bag of popcorn anxiously awaiting and wanting more research because I think it is fascinating. The scrotal uh, skin, I mean, again, it's skin just like in the muscles of the, you know, it, it, I think it, it could work and you want to find someone who knows what they're doing and has done a lot of it. Um, but I think it is these days, though, you got to be careful because everyone is getting Botox everywhere in their bodies. And there are certain limits of how much you can get in over a certain period of time. But it's the new wonder drug, if you will. People are doing it for headaches. They're doing it for sweating. They're doing it for, you know, uh, beautiful wrinkles on their face and, and things like that. But I've seen it work wonders on pelvic floors. And people are also putting Botox in their butts, too. You know, it can go literally anywhere. 
So I do have quite a number of patients who have a lot of pain in their male pelvic floor, right? So, so women have vulvas to reach their pelvic floor, men don't. And so if they put a Botox in their pelvic floors rectally, it also works really, really well. Yeah. And again, as you said, it's an area where we definitely need more research, especially in terms of use of Botox as a treatment for something like erectile dysfunction or premature ejaculation. But increasingly, it's being used throughout the body because it has so many different applications. Now, the penile and scrotal enhancement industry appears to be pretty lucrative. And I looked up prices online before the show. Penile implants can go for tens of thousands of dollars. Dermal fillers, a few thousand. Botox is several hundred or maybe a lot more, depending on how much of it you're getting. So these are expensive treatments. And as I mentioned, and as you mentioned, there's not a lot of data behind them. And if you go look at the before and after photos on a lot of these doctors' websites, most of the penises and scrotums you'll see are average to above average in terms of size, which I think raises the question of whether some doctors are over-eager to do risky procedures for profit and whether what we really need is just a lot more education about normal genital appearance in men. So I know we kind of already touched upon this a little bit, but do you have any other thoughts there? Do you think that we could kind of obviate the need for a lot of these procedures if we just did better education about normal variation in genital appearance? From your lips to God's ears. I mean, if, if, um, if we had sexual education of any kind in this country, things would be so much better because where are people getting their education from? They're getting it from porn, right? And if you look at porn, uh, women barely have any labia minora when labia minora are a sign of healthy hormone status. Labia minora are hormone sensitive. When you are a baby, you don't have any. When you go through puberty, you grow them. When you go into menopause and no longer have hormones, you lose them. So having big labia are actually a sign of you being at your healthiest sexual peak and and you will lose them as you get older. And yet when you watch pornography, you think that you must look like a prepubertal or postmenopausal vulva in order to be sort of desirable. That's a huge problem, right? On the same side, you have men who have well above the standard deviation of size. And I tell all of my patients that the way these porn stars keep their erections for more than two hours, that they all use injections, right? They're all injecting their penises with muscle relaxers right? Very strong. It's like liquid Viagra that they put directly into their penis. And that's how they keep these erections for so long. It's like the WWF. It's fake. It is not real, right? The Rock was not really doing those moves when he was doing those moves. And so it's, it's understanding what you're looking at. But when you give a 13-year-old boy that visual, and that's all that works, of course, he's going to think, oh, well, I'll never get, you know, someone to like me unless I do these crazy masturbatory techniques that I saw on the internet. It's a disaster. And so, yes, we need to do more education. I actually had a patient come to me once. Well, someone saw me lecture and she said, Dr. Rubin, she said, my daughter is 16 and she really wants a labiaplasty. And I'm a therapist. I know she doesn't need one, but no ch child listens to their mother. And I've learned that parenting is just paying other people to tell your kid what you could, you could tell them, but they won't listen to. She said, will you see my daughter? I said, sure, bring her up, bring her to the office. So her daughter came in by herself. We had, you know, I said, you know, do you have anything wrong with you? She was like, no, I don't really know why I'm here. And so I just went into my rah, rah, this is your body. This is, you know, and I show pictures. Everyone gets PowerPoint presentations. 
presentations and this is anatomy and this is what this and this is sexual function and orgasm gaps and what gives people pleasure. And then she came into the exam room and we gave her a mirror and I give all of my patients mirrors and we look together at her body parts and I use words. I say, this is your labia majora. This is your labia minora. This is your clitoris. This is the hood to your clitoris. This is your vestibule. This is your urethra. This is your vagina. This is your pelvic floor. And they watch with me. And at the end of that visit, she was like, I, you know, I said, you're, you know, labia are healthy. This is totally normal. There's nothing wrong with you. And this is like the sign of good, fun hormone status. You know, this is what vibrators are. Go get one and enjoy yourself. And I tell you, I actually ran into the mom at a conference not too long ago. And she said, oh my God, my daughter is like the biggest feminist now ever. She never mentioned it again, you know, labiaplasty. It was the best money I've ever spent. And gosh, if only every doctor's appointment you know, pediatricians and gynecologists and urologists give their patients mirrors to just normalize and and say, you know, this is totally normal. Do you have any questions? Because hiding under that sheet that we do in the exam room is doing nobody any good. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. And it sounds like you're an amazing doctor. And I really do wish that more doctors would do that sort of normalization kind of exercise with their patients to help them understand that in a lot of these cases where people are coming in, there is nothing wrong with their body. They're well within the normal range. And if you can learn to love your body and be happy with it as it is and experience the pleasure that you're capable of experiencing, then you won't need like all of these procedures and enhancements. I have a new idea for a business actually is, is I had this happen recently. It gave me this idea. So I had this patient who I've been seeing a long time for pain with intercourse and her partner came in after many years of me working with her, her partner came in for the first time and he stood behind me while I did the exam and I, she had the mirror and he was behind me and I walked through the same way I do with everybody. And he was able to see that she didn't have pain everywhere, that it was just a specific spot where she had pain and she wasn't making it up and it wasn't fake and it wasn't because he was not supportive or anything. He was able to see it. And he, after the exam, he looked at me and he said, well, shit. Why we should have done that three years ago? Like, where was I? You know, this makes so much sense. I said, Oh my goodness, you know how couples before they get married, they go to counseling or or couple, you know, they they do they 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 do this premarital counseling. I said, we should do premarital exams of this is his penis, this is his scrotum, this is the head of his penis, you know, this is her vulva, this is her clitoris, this is her vagina, and just normalize the words so that way, or any couple, right? Uh, two two men, two women, any any genitals that come together and give them the doctor words and the way to just say these are just body parts. You can talk about them, give them permission to talk about them. It would create, it would just be so magical, right? I love all of that. You're doing truly amazing work and I would love to see that business emerge. Now we have much more to discuss, including cosmetic procedures for vulvas and vaginas and what the safety profile of those procedures is. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. The Modern Sex Therapy Institutes provides continuing education, certifications, and a PhD in sexology to mental health and medical professionals across the globe. MSTI is a one-stop shop for ASECT sex therapy certification requirements, including education, sexual attitude reassessment, and supervision. MSTI offers flexible payment plans and learning options. Attend from anywhere in the world and learn from experts on sex and relationships. For more information on their programs and offerings, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Want to last longer in bed? Our friends at Permesin can help. 
check out their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men last longer in bed. You can customize it for your own body and desensitize only the areas you want. Use it alone or in combination with other techniques for faster, more reliable results. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews and is physician-recommended. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet shipping to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place an order at promescent.com, where you'll also find an extensive selection of lubricants, supplements, condoms, and more. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. Rachel, let's talk about vulvas and vaginas. So we know that vaginal rejuvenation is increasingly a thing, and this refers to a number of different procedures that are designed to enhance cosmetic appearance and tighten up the vagina. So let's talk about the cosmetic part first. What kinds of procedures are being done to change the appearance of the vulva, and what are the risks associated with them? There's all sorts of surgeries and all sorts of things out there, and I won't uh, admit that I know all of them or have heard of all of them, but certainly uh, know quite a bit. But I would say labiaplasty is the idea of my labia are too big or um, one is bigger than the other or they, they hang down. And there are patients who you know, have labia that maybe are so long that they get caught in you know, certain uh, pieces of clothing or they're really irritated during exercise or they're mad about their Peloton biking which I'm very against for uh, pelvic health. And so they're very unhappy with the, the shape of the labia. Now that could be the labia majora, but it's more typically, I think, in the labia minora, those inner wings. And those were the same inner wings that really are hormone sensitive. And so when you are a baby, you don't have labia minora. Then puberty happens, you get a surge of estrogen and testosterone. And that surge of hormones is what makes the teenagers not be able to keep their hands off of each other. And your body literally changes and morphs and the labia minora grow, the vaginal opening gets pink, it gets lubricated, it gets strong, and it gets more acidic, it can fight infection, penetration can happen, all sorts of things and all sorts of things can go wrong. And so when those labia grow, there is no normal labia. There is no, you know, they're just like the scrotums all look different, right? It's different shapes, different sizes. Uh, Sometimes they're uh, not symmetric. All of that is sort of within the realm of normal. But remember, I said they're very hormone sensitive. And I always say this, when you play with hormones, there are consequences. Sometimes those consequences are fabulous. And sometimes they are a nightmare. And I will give you an example, birth control. The same hormone can sometimes be fabulous and a nightmare. Oral birth control pills can potentially stunt the growth of the labia. So I have patients who are, you know, 25 and have been on birth control pills since 13 and they have no labia minora. And that is likely because of the effects of birth control. This is a very understudied topic. Now, birth control is wonderful because it can prevent having babies, which you can have both of my babies. I don't really want them. You know, babies are hard to have, especially during a global pandemic. For anyone uh, who's dealing with that, my heart goes out to you. But birth control is both wonderful, but when you play with birth control, there are consequences. So if you look at large data sets, you can see increases of low libido, increases of anxiety and depression. And that is all due to the hormone changes that can occur with birth control. And so labia surgeries are quite common because 
uh, often, so take a porn star. Porn star's probably been on birth control for a long time. So porn star may have very small shrunken labia minora. Now everyone thinks that is what normal labia minora should look like. And we've got ourselves a disaster, people. So that is probably the most common. And when women want it taken care of, they go to a plastic surgeon, typically, who will happily make something look aesthetically uh, pleasing to you, but has no experience in vulvar surgeries, no extra training, no anatomical textbooks that have any more detailed anatomy, or you have a GYN doing it who similarly has no textbooks with uh, adequate uh, vulvar anatomy, and there is no real training that goes into doing these procedures. And so chaos can ensue, and, and so many patients have reported decrease in sensation, clitoral problems, arousal problems, numbness problems, pain problems, you name it. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer. No, but it was a great and very important answer. And, you know, I think you raise a really important point about the lack of training. And also when you look at medical textbooks, a lot of them don't include things like the clitoral nerve anatomy. And so, you know, it's very possible for a doctor who's doing some of these procedures to unintentionally sever certain nerves that can cause loss of sensation. And I have seen reports of people who have reported exactly that, where they went in for this cosmetic procedure and came out with this lack of function or lack of sensation. And so it's a really real risk of these procedures. And when I was researching these rejuvenation cosmetic procedures, I saw that another one that sometimes is performed that surprised me is clitoral unhooding. So have you heard much about that being used as one of these cosmetic procedures? So certain women think that their clitoral hoods are too big. And so there are clitoral hood reduction surgeries where they sort of tighten up your clitoral hood, supposedly. Like if you have extra, I'm thinking of the male equivalent, if the man had two two uh, lacks of a foreskin and they were bothered by it, perhaps. Like there are times when the hood of the, of the clitoris could get way too tight and smegma, those oils and skin cells can build up around it and you can have pain or discomfort. There are some reasons why we would do kind of opening up procedures to allow that hood to go back and forth over the head of the clitoris. But just for an aesthetic reason, it, you know, it, for me, it's, What's the function? If do we feel that the function is diminished or affected, you know, then let's put our heads together of what we can do. And knowing it's sort of these experimental, we don't know what it's going to do. And you got, you got to take on the risk of we don't know the answer. It breaks my heart of, oh, I think my clitoral hood is too big. I want it to look tighter. So my partner likes me and they have perfectly normal orgasm, perfectly normal sexual function. Well, that's a big risk there. Oof, that's a, that's a risk I am not sure that I would be willing, I certainly wouldn't be willing to, to perform, but it would break my heart to see something go wrong there. Yeah. So as we've been talking about with penile appearance and with the appearance of the vulva, you know, a lot of people who have concerns have perfectly normal genital anatomy. So do you have any resources that you would refer people to so that they can better learn about diversity and variation in genital appearance? I, I think your advice about sort of getting familiar with your own anatomy with a mirror is great, but people might also want to see what that diversity and variability can look like. 
It's a great question. There are some really wonderful art installations and projects that are out there, and maybe we can link to them. I can find them for you and quickly, maybe we can link to them in the show notes. There's one about, you know, just different like casts of vulvas and you see all of the different shapes and sizes. I've seen it as wall posters and, and things like that. And similarly, the, there is an artist who has done similar casting of penises and you can see just how much uh, difference there is. I love those art sort of topics because it just sort of normalizes it so wonderfully. I will also say, you know, there are nomograms out there, you know, on the penis size thing of really understanding what is quote unquote uh, normal. And again, there is no body part that it is. How does it function for you? How do you feel? How do you want it to function better? And is it because you've, you know, there, gosh, there are so many ways to enjoy sex and and just even our thinking of what is sex needs to be changed is this idea of you know man must enter woman and orgasm to uh, equal the definition of sex well who invented that i mean you and i can both guess who invented that but this idea of you know, women can have multiple orgasms and most do so without penetration. And why is that not sex? And why is that not part that, why that, why is that called foreplay? You know, and and so really just expanding our understanding and our mindset of what is success. And I spend so much time working with patients, whether they're 75, 95, or 22 of what is that definition of success for you? Sure, we can work to make it better and more fun, but maybe we need to shift our mindset a little bit about, you know, every day I wake up with my partner or I wake up able to have an orgasm or I wake up, you know, healthy with all my parts, that's a good day. And anything we can add to that, maybe it's a better day. It's crazy. You know, as a surgeon, I end up doing tons of mindset work of just like, you know, talking to my, everyone thinks I'm a sex therapist because I actually talk to my patients not a sex therapist. I just really genuinely care and want to push you to just think differently and also to expand your toolbox, right? Like it, it doesn't have to look like it did when you were 19, but you're not going on the same vacations that you went on when you were 19. You're not eating at the same restaurants. Like, why are you still having the same kind of sex? You know, there's technology now. There's all sorts of fun things out there. Yeah. And I think that's such an important point in this broader discussion about genital enhancement is that sex doesn't mean just one thing. And the more that you expand your definition of sex, the more things you have on that sexual buffet, the more roots and opportunities there are to experience pleasure. And ultimately, that's good for all of us. And I think in some cases, just by expanding your definition of sex and experimenting and exploring your body and uncovering new sources of pleasure can sort of obviate the need for pursuing some of these types of risky procedures. Now, as I mentioned earlier, tightening is often a part of vaginal rejuvenation surgeries. So I wanted to ask for your thoughts on that. And I've read that there are a few different treatments for this from use of lasers to surgical procedures. So What's the risk of vaginal tightening and how important is tightness anyway when it comes to women's own sexual pleasure? So I have a lot to say about this. So I'm going to try to be as succinct as possible. We were just talking about how the vulva vagina is very hormonally sensitive, right? When you're a baby, you have no labia minora, you grow them, and in menopause, you lose them. And so I really want to be clear, it's the vagina, the vulva, the bladder, the urethra are very hormone-sensitive structures. Without hormones, 
they become dry, they become irritable, they become uh, non-acidic, and they get urinary tract infections, urinary frequency, urinary urgency, painful intercourse. So the, a lot of genital and urinary complaints can happen after menopause when, the, when you're not getting your period anymore. Usually it's around age 50, but for some people it's much earlier. Over the decades of having no hormones in your body, the tissue rebels. It does not like having no hormones in the body. And the muscles that surround your pelvis become thin and they don't work as well. And so they can become lax or too too loose, if you will, or some they become too tight because they're in pain. And so they're really contracted and too tight. And so the, the idea of that, that fixing that is called vaginal rejuvenation is one of the most disgusting things that I could ever imagine. I think that word should be uh, completely destroyed. The idea that wanting to fix those symptoms is thought to be rejuvenating is disgusting, right? Fixing that is absolutely just health, right? Wanting to not have what is called genitourinary syndrome of menopause, like every woman over 50 should be on therapy for fixing those problems. And the therapy is should be less expensive than it is, but is, you know, you can get it for either your insurance covers it or as little as $40 a month is a local vaginal hormone for the rest of your life, usually it's a twice a week a treatment for the rest of your life that will keep the tissue strong, healthy, and acidic. It will make you not have urinary tract infections. It will make you not have urinary frequency or urgency. It takes about two months to start working, and it will only work if you keep using it forever and ever. And that is the most underused. Every woman in the world over 50 has this, and yet less than 6% of women are on treatment for it. That is horrific. So anyone listening who has access to, and I know you have so many listeners, which is why I'm so excited to be here. Anyone who has access to insurance companies, to legislation, to the FDA, we have so much work to do regarding this incredible public health crisis. Women are dying of urinary tract infections in the hospital, especially during COVID. We need to get them to understand that these local vaginal hormone therapies are safe. They're often safe even if you've had breast cancer. They're definitely safe if you've had a family history of breast cancer. So that's not rejuvenation. That is called just medicine and just treatments, and, and women should not have urinary frequency and urgency and pain with sex. So that being said, there are all of these treatments out there that tell women that they're going to cure that, whether it's a laser-based therapy or a, a heat-based therapy. There are so many different therapies out there. In my opinion, that is experimental therapies, and the data is not there. We know that local vaginal hormone therapy works, and it's safe, and not enough people are using it. The other therapies that are out there are exciting in theory, but none of them work nearly as well as what the gold standard is. And we are we are charging women tons of money for these things when really they should be getting good advice about the safety and the efficacy of local vaginal hormones. And so not all hormones are the same, okay? A birth control pill is not the same as an IUD. The hormones that your grandmother took for menopause are not the same as the patches of today. And local hormone therapy for the vagina is not go, going through your bloodstream. It is safe. It's effective. And every woman over 50 needs it. And it can be prescribed by your primary care doctor. Go to any of my social media posts and you will see how to do it and why, and why it's so safe. But that is, it's not about sex. It's about urinary health. And that's where my urology hat comes in of why it's so important. So I know that was a long-winded answer, but that is like my soapbox that I just love to stand tall on.
Well, I can tell it's a subject you are very passionate about, and I appreciate you sharing all of that valuable information with my listeners. Now, I have one other question for you on this subject of vaginal rejuvenation, which is it's something I learned about from my partner many years ago, who is a physician. And when he was on his OB-GYN rotation and delivering babies back in medical school, one of the doctors told him about this thing called the husband stitch, which is basically an extra stitch that is inserted to increase vaginal tightness following childbirth when a woman experiences a lot of vaginal tearing or has an episiotomy. And the goal is purely to enhance pleasure for women's partners. And doctors are sometimes doing this extra stitching without women's consent. And to me, that's one of the most egregious things I've ever heard about in medicine. And it's yet another way that women's bodies have been controlled for men's pleasure. So is this something that you've heard about as well? And is it still going on today? Oh, I'm sure it's still going on today. I have no doubt that it's still going on today. Now, there are times after childbirth, think about it, you got a watermelon coming out of a very small space and things can stretch out, they can tear and things can prolapse. And so there are reasons why your vagina can start to prolapse out of your vulva, your uterus can even prolapse out of your vulva. All of those things, there are uh, conservative options, there are surgical options, there's all sorts of options out there. And so sometimes there are procedures uh, for prolapse that to kind of get everything back anatomically, how there are uh, some tightening type procedures. Now that's a little different than the husband stitch that you are referring to. Anytime you do things like that, you do risk you know, pain or a pelvic floor problems. But if the prolapse is so, again, it's, it's, it's risk benefit is the benefits of not having the prolapse, which can be very bothersome too. Anytime you have surgery, there are always going to be a risk of complications and, and really understanding what those complications are, are important. You know, I always say, why is it always a loose vagina? Why isn't it an insensate penis, right? Maybe the penis doesn't have enough sensation, which can happen in diabetes. It can happen with, you know, all sorts of neurological issues. And so I have lots of male patients who have a decreased sensation in their penis. And so a vagina just isn't what it used to be, if you will, because they literally don't have feeling in their penis. So they need that increased vibration or that death grip or something like that. And if that gives them pleasure, then yes, let's do more of that. So it's understanding it's not always the vagina's fault. In fact, you blame the vagina way too often and really understanding, well, is it really the tightness or what is really going on here? Yeah, I appreciate you sharing all of that and challenging the way that people tend to think about these issues. And, you know, another point that I think is worth raising here, because, you know, there is that discussion of, you know, being too loose and all these other sorts of things. And, you know, honestly, I think that some people just are not a good genital fit for one another, right? Different people's bodies will line up in different ways. And for some people, it's going to line up in a way that results in more pleasure for both partners. For other people, there might be less pleasure for one partner or the other. And I think when that happens, it's a matter of finding new ways to explore pleasure with your partner. If you don't happen to have that, you know, sort of perfect genital fit or if your genital fit changes over time. So again, that goes back to expanding this definition of sex and finding new avenues and routes to pleasure. I love that so much, that idea of genital fit. And I think there's so much to that. And and part of, you know, my training as a sexual medicine physician is 
I have to take care of not just the patient in front of me, but I have to understand what's going on with the partner too. And so, you know, this idea that you could be a men's health specialist only is ridiculous, right? Like the fact that men's health specialists have no training in female anatomy is nothing short of a crime. And so I'm often asked to give, you know, 15 minute lectures of what the men's health specialist needs to know about a female sexual health. And they just want 15 minutes, like give me a break. But that's such a good point. And I was listening to your podcast about people being single and people being more comfortable being single and finding your, you may not have the one person who fits all of your boxes, who's the perfect parent and the perfect uh, sexual partner and the perfect life partner. And, you know, sometimes we have to make decisions and, and make decisions of what is right for us. And I love that idea of, listen, everyone is shaped a different way. And you have to say, like, is, does this work in my sexual health plan? Yeah, I think it's such an important point and something that I hope we pay more attention to going forward. Now, I know we're running short on time, but there's one other thing I wanted to ask you about very quickly, which is what do you think the rise in people seeking genital enhancement surgeries and the growing number of procedures available, what does that say about us sexually as a culture? And what's the main thing you want people to take away from this conversation? I love it. And I will be very simple of look at where we are as a society in our love of Instagram and Facebook. And we all care about aesthetics. How do we look and how we look is going to make us, if we look amazing, we must feel amazing. And we all know that is not true, right? There is no matter how many beautiful pictures you see on Instagram, all of those people have challenges and uh, times of anxiety and times of depression and times of true sadness and and, and family drama. Oh my gosh, it's been the holidays. So who doesn't have family drama? Everyone ha are just, they're real. And I think sexual health, again, it's not Hollywood. It's not a beautiful romantic comedy. It's sex is awkward. It's messy. It's, it's, it's silly. It makes you laugh. Weird noises come out of you. Like uh, it's totally strange. And the better we get at talking about it and making it real, the better I think we will get to understanding that it is not about how it looks. It's about how it functions, about how it feels, about how it makes us feel about ourselves. And that's where the conversation needs to change because no one is in the bedroom most people are not live casting their sexual experiences to the internet. And so it's not about what you think other people want your sexual health to look. It's about, you know, what is happening in that room with just you or just you and your partner or partners. And that's all that matters. And everyone else can just shove it. <laughs> Rachel, I have so enjoyed talking to you today and I've learned so much and I'm sure my listeners have as well. So can you please tell us where my listeners can go to learn more about you and your work? Oh my God. And let me say being on the 69th episode is incredibly intimidating and an honor in my opinion. People can find me at rachelrubinmd.com. My Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook is at Dr. Rachel Rubin. And I am in the Washington DC area uh, launching my very own private practice. And so I am just, gosh, I am totally honored to be here. And thank you so much for inviting me. Well, we wish you the best with your new practice. Thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, which was made on Zencaster, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, 
tell me what you want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.